Go. I was standing up here. It's funny. Remember the apostles when Jesus was walking the earth and they, Jesus, we'll do this. Who will sit on your right hand and on your left in the kingdom? I will follow you anywhere. And Jesus is like, yeah, right. You know, let me tell you what's going to happen and things. It, it reminds me when we here at campus, there was a time when we were changing books and in milk and in meat at the same time. We said, what do you want to study? And in milk, it was like ver- fairly packed. We want to study the book of Acts. Let's take a vote. Book of Acts. So we go through the book of Acts. By the time we get through the book of Acts, there's a third of the people left. And, and even more so is the book of Revelation. We want to study the book of Revelation. You really want to do that? Yes, yes, let's study it. And the, mo- the loudest people saying book of Revelation are gone. And now we have people who come and there's visitors who by the end of it are like, help me get out of here. Uh, so it kind of makes me laugh, but I'm glad we've been able to get to chapter 17. Let's read up to verse 6. And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, John says, saying to me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of the names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication, And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, John says, I wondered with great admiration. (coughs) Go back to verse 1. We have gone through the we've gone through the seals, we've gone through the trumpets, we've gone through the bowls or vile judgments, and now we have entered into a new period of time in Revelation, chapter 17, 18, and 19. What is this all about? This is about the preparation that God is making on the earth for Jesus to marry his bride. And so we are going to see the fallout upon Babylon here. And so John says, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials. Remember, those have all been poured out and all the destruction that they were going to bring. And talked with me, saying unto me, come hither, and I will show unto you the judgment of the great whore that sits upon many waters. Okay? So, judgment's poured out. Babylon the Great, we're going to read about, we read about Babylon in Revelation 16, 19. We recall that this was done at the hand of one of the angels. One of the angels now takes John and he says, let me show you the judgment that's going to come upon Babylon. All right. Now, Babylon, whose identity we will discuss soon, and you'll know who it is because if you've been with us, 
is referred to as the great prostitute, the great whore, who is seated on many waters. Now you remember in our discussion that waters represent one thing in, in Revelation and earth represent another thing. And we might have that come to pass here, so to speak, but we might not. So with Jesus about to receive his bride in the following two chapters, we have another woman being represented in the scales. We have the bride of Christ and we have the whore of Babylon. And that is what is being discussed here, one or the other. We know that the fall of Babylon was announced in Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, which we covered. And like I said, 17 through 19 reveal the, the destruction of Babylon in greater detail, which is a precursor to the marriage of the lamb to the bride. Appropriately, the chaste bride of Christ is contrasted with the filthy nature of the whore. So that's what we see. So as a means to have this view, John is transported in vision into the wilderness. He's been in heaven. He's been seeing heavenly things. But now the angel says, let me take you and I will show to you the things that are happening from the wilderness perspective. Now David S. Clark points out, quote, Sometimes John is carried away into heaven to see visions, but the thing he was about to see now has no affinity with heaven. Remember, it's the whore of Babylon. There's no connection to heaven here. Heavenly things he sees in a heavenly vision. Earthly things he sees in earth or from the wilderness. So he was taken to a wilderness as a more appropriate place and in congruity with what he was about to see. That's why it says in that chapter, the angel said, come, let me take, come hither, and I'm going to take you to see what's going to happen, be poured out on the whore of Babylon. Verse 2, speaking of her with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Okay, so obviously the whore of Babylon is not a woman. Now, reading this, you just can't help but think of women. And it's really unfair, because she's not a woman, and neither is the bride of Christ a woman. Okay, so just remember that when you start to, you know, personify these characters into women. That's not what this is. It never has been. They are representational states of mind and heart of people. And they're used in the feminine just to represent what that feminine type was involved with, right? I, I heard someone once say, he was a great sociologist, say that the uh, condition of our nation does not lie in the strength of men. It lies in the uh, character of women. That, you know, men will always be failures and fallen, but when our women as a whole begin to decline, that's when you can see great nations begin to fall. And so that might be why God uses uh, good women versus bad women characteristics here to represent the bride of Christ, who include males, and the whore of Babylon, who include males as well. Babylon is indicated throughout Scripture for sexual immorality. Um... And here it says that the dwellers on earth and the kings of the earth were guilty for their fornication with her. 
all right? In our study of Revelation so far, we have suggested that there are many references to the earth, even to the world in Revelation, but when you look at the Greek, it's always to the Gehe, which is the area, or the oikomenia, which is the area. It's never the world. It never has been the end of the world. It's always been when this will be poured out upon the world. It's always the area. It's always that specific land, Israel, Palestine. So notice that the reference to the kings of the earth here is not the kings of the world have had fornication with the whore of Babylon. It's the kings of the oikomenia the kings of that specific land, otherwise known as the Caesars, which we have talked about, and we're going to talk about next week. So the Caesars of the land have had fornication with this horror of Babylon, and uh, which oikomenia is economy for us. We get the same thing. So it's the economy of the Roman Empire Caesars have had intimate relations not sexual in this idea, unless it was through uh, uh, a debauchery, but it is, they have had um, communion, koinonia, Greek, with the whore of Babylon, okay? The whore of Babylon here is Israel. The whore of Babylon is Israel who did not receive Christ as Messiah, and the kings of the Roman Empire, they had kings, Caesars, they had intercourse with them in order to produce this liaison between fallen Israel who put the Christ to death and who continued to rail against Christians and put them to death. Take that picture versus the bride of Christ who came out of Israel, are not part of her whorish practices of engagement with Rome, but came out and said, we follow our Messiah even to the death. And we've talked about how there has been great carnage and death poured out upon Christians during that age. And we've given you a uh, uh, recitation from uh, Josephus and from Tacitus and from uh, Cassiodio, all these historians who've said these Christians were being killed and this has happened. The Roman army did this. And all right. So the kings of the land... On the one hand, the Jews had intercourse, koinonia, the spirit of those Roman kings. And that is why she's depicted in this way. We've also noted a couple times that at this point in John's narrative, um, there's a division, even within the preterist camp, of who judgment is being poured upon here in uh, Revelation 16 and 17. Some preterists even say it's poured out upon Rome. Some say it's poured out upon Jerusalem. I am going to stand with, this is all talking about it being poured out upon Jerusalem. And I'm going to give you some reasons why. One, the fall of Rome, which didn't occur until 476 AD, does not fall within the book of Revelation saying these things must shortly come to pass. So therefore, I believe it's all talking about falling upon Jerusalem because it doesn't fit within the time frame of what the book of Revelation says the time frame is. Remember, first book of Revelation, quickly, shortly, coming, quickly to the seven churches. Ends quickly, coming, shortly, soon, in the last book of Revelation, to the seven churches then. We cannot read it today and say, we're waiting for it to happen. It was for them. 
So because it was quickly, it could never have been applied to even Rome in 76, 476 AD. The Olivet Discourse does not include a discussion of the fate of Rome, but it does certainly uh, include a discussion of Jerusalem. Um, Revelation presents a series of contrasts for us. The lamb versus the lion. I mean, lamb versus the dragon. And the father's name versus the beast's name. Um, um, the bride versus the harlot. And so we have Babylon versus uh, the new Jerusalem, really is what we're talking about. What Israel has become in her flesh by rejecting the Messiah, putting him to death, and then paying for it in judgment and the wrath of God poured upon them, versus those who have been faithful to Christ and have endured the suffering that whole time up to 70 AD, and then, as the apostles said, were saved by him coming back and taking up his bride. Um, the new Jerusalem is the church or the bride. The earthly Jerusalem is clearly in view in earlier chapters of Revelation. To bring Rome into the picture at this point only introduces a third city, and it wrecks the symmetry of the book so far. So I think, again, we're talking about a Jerusalem, physical Jerusalem. As a symbol for uh, Jerusalem, Babylon, remember in Revelation uh, chapter 11, verse 8, Jerusalem, Israel, is referred to as Sodom, and it is referred to as Egypt. Both of those terms are in harmony with Jerusalem, or Israel also, be called, also being called Babylon. So I, that's another reason I see it. The phrase, that great city, the great city used of Jerusalem earlier in 11.8 is used repeatedly in these chapters about Babylon. So I see a comparison there. In chapter 14, the wine press was trodden outside of the city, which almost all understand to refer to Jerusalem being outside the city. Yet the only city named earlier in this chapter is Babylon, hence Babylon equals Jerusalem. That's how I do that math for whatever that's worth. The division of Babylon into three parts um, in Revelation 16, 19 best fits what happens with Jerusalem. Uh, and if you look at Ezekiel, as we talked about last week, five, you see that. Uh, the name the harlot for Israel is well established in the Old Testament. She is constantly referred to as the adulterous wife who had a relationship with God but chose to go after, after pagan gods to have uh, koinonia with those pagan gods, look to them for her sustenance, as proven by some wonderful chapters in the Old Testament. That's consistent with Jerusalem now, Israel now, being the harlot. Old Testament, New Testament prophecy. So... Chilton, a famous uh, eschatologist, writes, quote, The metaphor of holotry is exclusively used in the Old Testament for a city or nation that has abandoned the covenant and turned toward false gods. That's what we're talking about with fornication and adultery in the Old Testament, usually. Most of the time, it's idolatry and having intercourse with pagan gods, not the sexual idea. And so there's only two exceptions, uh, Chilton says, but the term is always used for faithless Israel, ex ex 
with the exception of two times in the entire Old Testament. So that gives us another reason to say that this is being poured out upon uh, Jerusalem. Uh, also, Jerusalem sat on seven hills. I didn't know this. I haven't been there, but other people have, and I did some study, and just as Rome sat on seven hills, Jerusalem did too. If the kings of the earth, earth in verse 2, is understood to be the rulers of the oikonomia, uh, the land, Israel, then Jerusalem, as appropriately as Rome, could be considered this great city. The Jews of Jerusalem were idolatrous, as idolatrous by this time as they were in Rome. And then finally, no city other than Jerusalem could be charged, this is a big one, no other city other than Israel and Jerusalem with its headquarters as the city of David could be charged with the blood of the prophets and of the saints. There's no other city on earth that can be charged with that except them. And so we see in, in 17 verse 6, uh, 18, 20, and 24, that this charge is laid on them. So, although I first assume that the whore is uh, the spirit of Rome resting on her established seven hills, I taught that a few weeks ago, I've changed my mind, and I think I'm pretty convinced now this is talking about uh, Jerusalem, the whore of Babylon, and has nothing to do with Rome, but there's other very good scholars uh, who disagree. I just happen to side with the scholars who don't. Verse 3, John says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered, excuse me, colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So, Remember, it's the whorish Babylon, it's whorish Israel sitting upon a beast that has the seven heads and ten horns, which we have described in the past as perfectly describing Rome of old with their provinces and with their kings. That's what those horns and those, uh, uh, those uh, heads represent, okay? So John sees the woman, Israel, the whore Israel who's gone a-whoring after false gods, on a scarlet red beast with, that has seven heads and ten horns. And we discussed the identity of this beast at length in Revelation 13. And we have given compelling, beyond compelling evidence that his identity is Nero. That this is Nero and it's Nero specifically and it is Rome generally. That's what we said. It's a red beast, Nero specifically and Rome generally with the ten heads, the ten provinces, and the, king, and, the, and the horns being the kings. That's what this whore of Israel that she had become after they dismissed the Messiah and put him to death, she is now riding on the back of this beast, showing a union between the two. The woman here in verse 3 is seen, of course, as a prostitute, and the fact that she is sitting on the beast shows she's not one with the beast, but they have a union. She's riding on the back of Roman power. And that's what uh, Israel did. They, remember what they said when they crucified Jesus. We have no king but Caesar. That's our king. And so now we have Revelation saying she's riding on the back of that place, which is going to turn and kill her. And, and, and we'll talk about that. So it suggests a very close relationship between the woman and the beast who are distinct in their identity. 
in summation, I see the woman as the whore Jerusalem riding Rome the beast uh, and having, uh, and this is really kind of how you would say it, as gross as it is, fornication with that beast. That's how scripture puts it. Not sexual, but it's with the pagan idolatry. Now, if you remember how Josephus describes what was going on in Israel with those people when they fell and when they turned from the Messiah, uh, the horrible things they were doing to each other, what they were doing to each other sexually, what they were doing to each other with Rome, it is a picture beyond compare. We have that being fulfilled here. This is the imagery of God's reprobate creations adopting the ways of the Roman world. In whatever sense, the fallen of Jerusalem had sat on the beast with seven heads, seven mountains. Remember, those mountains are on the coins of Rome then, the seven mountains. And that beast will ultimately turn and destroy her as, 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 uh, as uh, verse 9 and 16 and 18 sort of allude to that she will be destroyed by the beast she's actually riding on. So Israel, remember, had enjoyed a great relationship with Rome. And it, was un- it wasn't until the Jewish revolt of 66 AD that suddenly Rome said, uh, what are you doing? We have been good to you. We have a, a working relationship. And suddenly, you want to try to revolt against us? And so Judaism was recognized as a valid religion in the Roman Empire up until their revolt. Josephus wrote of this relationship. He said, quote, It seems to me to be necessary here to give an account of all the honors that the Romans and their emperors paid to our nation Israel, and of the leagues of mutual assistance they have made with it. That's in his Antiquities, 1410. The Jews frequently took advantage of that relationship, and it induced pers- and, and they induced persecution slowly upon themselves, and uh, as they added persecution upon followers of Christ. A guy named W. H. C. Friend says, "Quote: The promptings of Orthodox Jews in the capital had something to do with Nero's decision to begin persecuting Christians." in the late 60s AD. So we see a switch, all right? This is all God using the Roman nation to bring about his justice upon those people. Why was the beast that John sees called red or scarlet? Kenneth Gentry suggests, one, the robes Rome by, uh, worn by Roman emperors were red. We know that if you just watch a historical film today, a, a replication of it or a reenactment of it, Rome, led by Nero, was responsible for shedding so much blood of God's people, both Jews and now Christians. And then Nero was famous for having a ginger beard. He was known as having a red, red beard. And so it makes sense that Nero, uh, with the red and the Roman army with red and the bloodshed, that the beast that the whore Israel sits upon would be a red, scarlet animal. Uh, This connection may be a clue uh, for people then reading when it says, and she sits on a red scarlet beast, for them to know red. We know what red means. It means bloodshed. It means Nero. It means Rome. So they would get that reading that at that time. Verse 4 and (coughs) 5. 
And the woman was arrayed, listen to this language, in purple and scarlet color, that's what she was wearing, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, the abominations of the Gehei. Um, a guy, he's the founder of the Preterist Archive, which I recommend to you to check all these things out. His name is Todd Dennis. He gives a really interesting insight. And when do you remember in Scripture reading um, a description where somebody is arrayed with purple, scarlet color, decked with gold, precious stones, with a golden cup in their hand? I'm not sure about the golden cup. Well, if you turn to Exodus 28, beginning at verse, I don't have the verse, um, it says, and the curious girdle of the ephod, which is upon it, shall be of the same according to the work thereof, even of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen. In the broader explanation of the dress of the high priest, the only thing mentioned that is missing is the pearls that are mentioned in Revelation. So the imagery is that the former high priest that Moses was described on how they should wear, what they should wear, the stones in their ephod, the gold, the fine linen, all these purple and scarlet, all there in the Old Testament description except for pearls. We now have the whore of Babylon sitting on the back of the Roman Empire and wear, wearing the same things. The exact, almost the exact same thing except for pearls. So the golden cup that she held was likely symbolic of the temple vessels. Remember, they made the cups in the temple out of gold. And uh, so uh, that is according to Jewish historian um, Josephus in Wars 5. Also representative of the priesthood, we read in Exodus 28:36 that on Aaron's forehead, remember, also representative of the priesthood, that written on Aaron's forehead, it said, holy to the Lord. So we have the Old Testament picture of the high priest of Israel, sanctified, washed, and clean, doing the priesthood rites, wearing, having holiness to the Lord on his forehead, dressed in scarlet, gold, stones, everything else. And now in Revelation, the consummation of the whole thing, we have the whore of Babylon dressed in the same stuff. This is fallen Israel. This is Israel still thinking that we turn to um, the law that we still use the temple, that who cares about this Messiah bit? Let's go and let's stick with what we uh, have established over the centuries by virtue of tradition. I mean, and so that's why John sees the whore dressed in the same garb as the high priest temple uh, guy of uh, Aaron of the Old Testament. And of course, the whore's Babylon here. It says, Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and the earth's abomination. Almost everything you can think of that's reprehensible to God is on that forehead, right? Interestingly enough, Josephus says that when they went into the temple, they discovered, listen to this. This is in 70, this is in 60, 70 AD. In the midst of the innermost court, the most sacred part of the temple, 
he, said, he describes what was captured there by the Romans. Josephus wrote, but then this house, as it was divided into two parts, the inner part was lower than the appearance of the outer and had golden doors of 55 cubits altitude and 16 in breadth. But before these doors, there was a veil of equal largesse within the doors, that's the gold, and it was Babylonian curtain embroidered with blue and fine linen and scarlet and purple, and in the context, and the contexture was most wonderful. So even when they went into the temple in the innermost part, they discovered similarities of what John saw in vision that the whore of Babylon would be wearing while riding the red beast. There are further parallels. In Jeremiah's day, Judah, uh, with its capital being uh, Jerusalem, was indicted because it had, quote, played the whore with many lovers and, quote, polluted the land with vile whoredoms. That's Jeremiah 3, 1 through 2. So we have an Old Testament thing, again, which we mentioned that in the Old Testament, Israel is constantly referred to as being the one who played the whore with other nations. Additionally, as it was in John's day, Scripture says that Judah, prior to its fall in 586 B.C., had the forehead of a whore. That's a quote. Old Testament. Judah, prior to her fall in 586 B.C., had the forehead of a whore. What that means is it's a picture or type of what we're going to read in Revelation coming about for the nation of Israel. So Judah was a whore then. Judah is a whore now, and Christ came, and he said, look, I'm here. John the Baptist said, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. The end is here. Prepare yourselves. And Jesus said, accept me or die. And, and those who didn't followed after the whore and are em, uh, emblematically represented here in Revelation. So Babylon the Great is more than just a physical city. Uh, with an identity, it was also a religious system full of abomination in God's eyes. Why? Because when his son died, the veil was ripped in two. And that whole system is done, ripped in two. And so that system, I believe, was Old Covenant temple-based Judaism. It's a ridiculous form. It's so ridiculous that God depicts it for John there as being a whore that's riding on the back of Rome. That old system is dead, okay? Because, and I, I make that assumption because of the apparel that is worn by the whore, which was worn by the high priest in Moses' day as an emblem of purity. Now it's an, now it's an emblem of, of utter disgust. In the next chapter, we will see a command from God regarding Babylon that says, Listen to this. It's talking about Babylon. God says in chapter 18, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. The sin of Babylon in Revelation 18 was the sin of rejecting the Messiah, sticking to the old covenant ways, saying Judaism is the way to go. And God says, I'm pouring my righteous indignation upon this nation as promised within a generation. And Jesus gave them the sign of what it would look like. And so we had it happen. We know from chapter one that John's immediate audience did not live in Jerusalem or in Rome for that matter, but in Asia Minor. Remember that? To believers in Jerusalem, they fled. They got it, as we noted in chapter 7. 
But what did this message mean to believers already living outside of Jerusalem and Judea, part of the seven churches that received this revelation specifically from the mouth of Christ to John's ear? They're outside of uh, Jerusalem, they're outside of Judea, they're outside of Rome, and they're getting a revelation telling them all this stuff from John. Listen, God's message was about breaking completely free from the old covenant temple-based Judaism and all that it entailed. And Babylon represented not only Jerusalem, but the unfaithful community which had rejected Christ. And in order to maintain that old covenant way of doing things. And both physical Jerusalem and temple-based Judaism were judged and destroyed in 70 AD. Remember, a third were slain by the sword, a third were killed by fire, and a third were sold into slavery and the diaspora existed and sent them out. The temple taken down to the ground, nothing left of genealogy or priesthood. Judaism is destroyed. They don't know who they are. And so what we have now is you go to Israel and you have a bunch of people claiming to be Jews, but no one knows. There's some idea where this, where that, but no one really knows. Why? Because it was done. It was taken care of. It's over. This is not anti-Semitic. In Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. But it was taken care of then. That makes sense. They're the ones who put the Messiah to death. They're the nation who, as a people, gathered together and took him. It makes sense that this would fall upon them. And it did. Daniel 9, 26, 27, we see it is on the wings of abomination that one comes who makes desolate. On the wings of abomination comes the one who makes desolate. Those words, abomination of desolation, are used in Luke by Jesus to describe the end that was going to come within a generation of time. So, uh, what are the abominations spoken of in both Daniel and Revelation? I'm going to quote John Calvin here, something I don't often do. This is for you, our visitor. Uh, let me, before I do that, let me pad my forehead so I don't pass out from lack of oxygen, for the sellout of my soul. For, no, I'm just kidding. Calvin said, quote, about, about this, I have no hesitation in referring this language of the angel to that profanation, he means the profaning, of the temple, which happened after the manifestation of Christ, when sacrifices ceased and the shadows of the law were abolished. From the time, therefore, at which the sacrifice really ceased to be offered, this refers to the period at which Christ, by his advent, should abolish the shadows of the law, thus making all offering of sacrifices to God totally valueless. All offerings of sacrifices to God. He continues, God's wrath followed the profanation of the temple. His wrath followed the profaning of the temple. The Jews never anticipated the final cessation of their ceremonies and always boasted in their peculiar external worship. And unless God had openly demonstrated it before their eyes, they would never have renounced their sacrifices and rites as mere shadowy representations. Hence, Jerusalem and their temple were exposed to the vengeance of the Romans. He tells us right there, that's why it had to all come down. 
or else we would have vestiges of trying to put the temple back up, trying to offer sacrifices within them, trying to become holy by temple rites and rituals and attendance, Mormons. That's why it's so reprehensible. It's because here in Revelation, I mean, it's the very, the, the whore of Babylon riding on the back, showing this is done, this is reprehensible to God. So, as Russell pointed out earlier, John is being shown a contrasting picture of two women. The harlot of chapters 17 and 18, and the bride of chapter 19, clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, and the righteous deeds of the saints. That's a beautiful picture. One, the harlot representing Judaism, persecuted the other. Remember, the harlot Jerusalem persecuted the other. Who's the other? The bride of Christ. She, ever since Christ, ever since Stephen was stoned, came after the bride. She was a vile enemy to the virtue of the bride. And she tried to kill her at every chance she could using the Romans and even themselves. This model of two women is present throughout the Bible and in different places, but it's also just present just in our daily lives. The idea that you take the wife of your youth and you're seduced by the neighbor next door. It's, it's, God is so smart, he builds it right into the way our lives work. And he builds it into the nation to show that... Um, there's going to be the, the, the woman of virtue, the bride of Christ, those who followed him in faith and love, and there's going to be those who hate her, and they're going to pursue her with all tactics and ugliness to get her to be destroyed, right? The most fascinating parallel to this comes from Paul. So if you want, turn to Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 31. Turn to it with me if you're at home, and those of you who are here who aren't asleep yet. Uh, turn to it, and let me read this with you, what Paul does. Because I would suggest what Paul says here in Galatians is a type and picture of what we're reading about here in Revelation with the, the whore and with uh, the bride. He says, and I used a different version of the King James. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. So take the picture we have of Hagar and Sariah and Sarah and just say which one was slave. And he's going to tell us. Now take the picture of the whore of Babylon and the bride of Christ. Switch those. Bride of Christ, whore of Babylon. Take those two. We have a picture here. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Do you read it? From that day. That's verse, I don't know. It's in 25. verse 25. Thank you, Rex. Verse 25. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, 
for she is in slavery with her children. But the, ready for this? Jerusalem above. Now he just contrasts two Jerusalems for us. One is present there in the dust and the brick and the mortar. The other one is above. Remember this, is free. And she is our mother. People say you want a mother in heaven? Yes, it's the new Jerusalem. If you're going to allegorize mothers, that is the, the mother in heaven. He says she's our mother. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one that does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, hopefully you caught that, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. Cast her out. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. That was him talking to the uh, Christians at uh, in, uh, Galatia. And so he's, telling, he's using an example. He's saying, look at this. All the way back to Hagar and Sarai, as soon as Hagar had a child, there was difficulty. And then when Sarah had her son, it was bye-bye fathead to Hagar. Because Hagar started undermining what was going on with the promised son. And women aren't going to have that. They won't do that. They're going to say, look, it's me or it's her. You pick, fathead. And that's what God says. You're not going to straddle both. You're not going to have the whore and you're not going to have the bride. You pick what you want, but this is how it is. So we have it going all the way back here to Paul and his imagery of freedom and bondage. What gives us bondage? The law. When the law is brought in, you are in bondage. It is death to the law where you have freedom. I got to give you the example I always give. Sorry if it's redundant. Here at campus, we have no rules at all. We are Christian anarchists. We do nothing by rules, right? Except one. Yes, we have to have one. I can't take it anymore. We all have to wear socks. They must be worn. In the summer, in the fall, spring, and winter, socks must be worn. If they are not worn, you're breaking the law of campus, which God gave to me, being a prophet, he said, your people must wear socks. One law. Everything else is between you and God, but we're going to have one law. Okay? So let's put it in place. Next week, it's a little warmer outside. Rex shows up in short pants. He's not wearing socks. The rest of you are wearing socks. What do we do? Under the law, we judge. He's not wearing socks. We have one rule, and he's not wearing them. So in our hearts, we judge him. Two weeks go by, other people don't wear socks. And we start to say, I'm better than they are. I wear socks every day. By the law, I am justified for my righteousness. By the law, these others who are reprobates are not wearing them, but oh, they're bad. And then you know what else happens? People start wearing Armani socks versus Kmart socks. And they break off into a little division there of Armani sock wearers because they're more holy. They're sacrificing more to wear the right socks, you see. 
The law puts you in bondage and kills you, no matter what law it is. And this is what God is saying here. That harlot has stuck to her traditions of the law, even though my son came and fulfilled it for them. That is not that. My bride has said, I trust him. I will walk with him. He will be the one who fulfilled it for me. I know I don't have to wear socks. I know I just have to believe that he wore the perfect socks on my behalf. You see how it works? And so the implication of this allegory used by Paul is so far-reaching in our world today and in our study of Revelation. Where is the whore, or there is the whore, the bondwoman, and there is the free woman, the bride of Christ, who is Jerusalem which is above, not present-day Jerusalem then which was in the dust. That was of the law. This is of the spirit. That's of bondage. This is of freedom. This is of Christ. This is of the former law that God has destroyed, you see. Note something important here. Paul says, now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem. I emphasize that. For she is in slavery with her children. Present day Jerusalem, Paul walking about it, they're in slavery. They're in slavery. Why? Because they had the law. But the Jerusalem above, remember this, is free. And she's our mother. That is so important. That we go by the new Jerusalem. We're not waiting for that to come. The Jerusalem then, the new Jerusalem, is from above, not will be from above, is from above. That's our mother as Christians. We're either part of that city and its inhabitants, the city of peace, or we're outside the city gates, a topic we're going to get to and discuss later on when we get to the later chapters, because this is going to show the fulfillment of it all with the wedding of Christ to the bride. Present Jerusalem was under the law and all the rights of the law, and hence Paul says she's in bondage. But true Jerusalem, which is Jerusalem above, is free. She's our mother. The new Jerusalem is heavenly based. It's spiritual. Her economy is one of liberty, not of law. So those who are part of the new Jerusalem today will allow everyone to wear whatever foot covering they want. Because it's a spiritual kingdom, not a brick-and-mortar kingdom. And people can be who they are without having those laws come in where we judge and are judged. In chapter 21, we're going to read, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. So we know where it comes from. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So when Jesus takes his bride, what it is is Jesus is taking his church. He's taking his new Jerusalem. He's taking his kingdom. That's what that is. And when we get to it, we'll talk about it. It's going to be uh, a great reward for going through all this. Who are the inhabitants of that city? Those who walked from the law then. Those who walk from the world. Those who walk from religious bondage and were emancipated by Christ and his spirit. For where the spirit of Christ is, there is liberty. Where the spirit, that's a passage, where the spirit of Christ is, there is liberty. When you come up with something, I don't care what system it is, if there is no liberty in it, 
then it is not of the Spirit of Christ. That cannot be overemphasized because we're all responsible before God for our choices, for how we're relating with our new Jerusalem and with our God and King in the Spirit in our lives. Let me give you two uh, comparisons. Revelation 17.1 says, Then one of the seven angels who had come with seven bowls came and said, Come to me, and I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated upon many waters. In Revelation 21.9 it says, Then came one of the seven angels which had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. That's what we're having here. I'm going to show you one. I'm going to show you the other. The wrap-up of this whole thing. In Revelation uh, 17.3, which we've just read, And he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. In Revelation 21.10, we're going to read, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So we have the wilderness for the whore, and we have the high mountain for the bride being contrasted here as we wrap up the book of Revelation after all these months. I think that Revelation is taking the same subject as spoken of in Galatians by Paul, that both books are contrasting two cities, physical Jerusalem and heavenly Jerusalem, Babylon and, um, Babylon and real Israel, uh, the new and heavenly Jerusalem of Revelation, the two wives, Hagar and Sarah in Galatians, are... Uh, and the widowed uh, harlot and the bride in Revelation. We have it all bouncing back and forth. These two women of Galatians and Revelation present two communities, those of the Old Covenant and those of the New, which is why I have stressed and repeated, in the New, the brick and mortar, the dusty streets of Jerusalem, the words written with ink, all the law, all that is a former economy. The mother from the new Jerusalem comes down and reigns by the spirit and the spirit is faith and love. That is why it's really troubling when we try to resurrect and start to create more brick and mortar to replicate a place here on earth when it's a spiritual heavenly economy. This morning I pointed out, we were doing a study and pointed out that when did we go from Paul saying, I haven't had a place to rest my head, I've been hungry, I've been thirsty, I don't have clothes to wear, I've been naked and destitute, and Jesus saying the Son of Man has no place to rest his head, and John the Baptist being put in prison after doing what he was supposed to and beheaded, and all of this stuff that the apostles and Jesus said, when did we go from that to building up edifices that represent the Christian faith? When did it happen? It started Uh, early, but it really started to foment with Constantine. And his mom walking around and saying, this is this, this is that, let's build a sepulcher here, let's build a bigger, more taxes, it's a a statewide religion, but everybody's a Christian now, bring in the money. We haven't stepped away from that since. And so we're talking about old covenant stuff here. The temple made with hands versus the temple not made with hands. Why we continue to try to straddle those two worlds, it's like putting one foot on the back of that red beast and putting another foot in the church with the bride of Christ. Doesn't make any sense. So, <clears throat> we also know that in the presence of these two women, like we had with Hagar and like we have with Sarah, like we have with the old covenant and the new covenant, like we have with the horror of Babylon and like we have with the bride, one was trying to kill the other one. And it's been that way from, from the get-go. Introduce a law part of the old, introduce a law and you'll have one trying to kill the other one. 
guarantee you. That's why heavenly Jerusalem is what we operate by, by the Spirit. All right, you ready for this? This is why the very next subject in Revelation after Babylon is destroyed is the wedding of the bride to Christ. You ready? Here we go. God gets rid of his unfaithful old covenant wife. Wife. Listen. Who irrevocably broke his betrothal to her when she killed his son. He says in the Old Testament that he grants her a bill of divorcement. And then he marries a new faithful to the covenant bride. The faithful of that age. Perhaps this is why Jesus says in the Gospels that it is divorce is permitted only for fornication. Because it, that is the deal breaker between a couple who have consummated their relationship. It's fornication. Because it's picturesque of what it was Remember, following after pagan practices, following after things that were not of the new covenant. We give Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Look to me, and you will live. They said, forget it. We're looking to the temple. We have Abraham as our father. We have the law. He says, no, no, no. They go to that old way, and they stay with it. So just as the new Jerusalem is not a literal city, but a community of people, the bride, a new covenant community, so Babylon was not a literal city, but a community of people, the harlot unfaithful to the new covenant that God had given through his son. Bringing it all home, we're almost done. Babylon that is about to be destroyed was centered in Jerusalem. Its citizens were all those of unfaithful Israel that had rejected Jesus for the temple system and the continuation of the law under priesthood. God's message was about breaking completely free from that old covenant temple-based system. So Babylon represents not only Jerusalem, but also the unfaithful community which had rejected Jesus in order to maintain that system of worship and rites. Both physical Jerusalem and temple-based Jerusalem were judged and destroyed in 70 AD as proof by the historical record and what Revelation tells us. We've proven it. Proven by what Jesus said. Proven by what the apostles said was coming in the Greek. It's coming. Daniel 9, 26, 27, we see that on the wings of abomination comes one who makes desolate. Uh, and this is a, re uh, a reference to what Jesus says in Matthew 23 and 24. Okay, final verse. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus... And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. That last line we're going to cover next week. But look at that. The woman said is to be drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Now today I know we have, and we have had maybe going back to 1940 years, we've had some martyrs for Jesus. Nothing close to what we had in the first early church. And Jerusalem was the place where they were slaughtered by the Roman hand. Nothing like it. So this is very applicable to them and there. The same charge is laid upon those of the earth in chapter 16, verse 1, where it said they have shed the blood of the prophets. Where else on this earth have the blood of the prophets been shared than Jerusalem? 
which is why it was poured out there. In chapter 18, we will see that in her was found the blood of the prophets and the saints and all who have been slain on the earth, and that the saints and the apostles and prophets are told to rejoice over her destruction in Revelation 18.20. Who was responsible for shedding all the blood of the prophets and saints? Jesus tells us, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says in Matthew 23, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have partaken with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So we can see right there who killed them, the forefathers. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to Gehenna? It says hell in the King James. That place where you're going to be thrown, a literal place your bodies will. How are you going to escape that? Because you have killed the prophets. Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of you will kill and crucify. Some of you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth. From the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Barakiah. Who you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. He tells us right there who had killed the, the prophets. Them. Revelation is saying, this is the place where they killed the blood of the prophets. It's coming down on them. It can't come down on us. It's not going to come down on us in 20 years when the Antichrist rises out of uh, Europe and has a six on his head. It was on them. They killed the prophets and the saints. How could this be speaking of us today or any fulfillment after 80 or 90 AD? It doesn't. That's a machination of men. We're going to wrap it up here. Questions, comments, and we'll continue on next week. Thank you, dear. Please, this is an open forum. Do not be afraid to speak. All right, we've got two. Patrick's gone, so we'll be quick. My name is Ray. Um, when it talks about the great uh, Babylon, it says that she was the mother of harlots, plural. Uh, my question is, there's an allegory in uh, Ezekiel 23, mm. where it talks about a mother that has two daughters, and these are sisters. Mm. And then it goes on and defines them as Samaria and Jerusalem. Mm. And it, it, the allegory indicates that they prostituted themselves because they associated with the Assyrians, their neighbor. Right. Does that have any relationship to this particular revelation? I believe it completely does. Old Testament fulfillment of what happened then and also pictures what would be later. So that happens often with the prophecies and stories of the Old Testament. It had application in their day with them at that time, and then it has application to the latter day when Jerusalem would be judged. And so I think it has complete application. I think that's a great point, Ray. And who else? Oh, Robert Verdon. He's awakened from his hibernation from the chair of... Relaxation. Relaxation. Um, 
I don't. I've never been able to verify this. I heard this on the radio one time that um, the Pope used to have mystery on his big tall hat. I don't know if anybody's heard that before, but I thought mystery it said he at subways. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Sean, uh, you probably wouldn't mind, but I'll ask anyway. Is it okay if I make an announcement? Oh, sure, Roger. I mean, uh, Robert. People do whatever they want in here. Thank you, Sean. That's very kind of you. Um, I know a pastor of uh, Fresh Life Church, and they're a good church. They teach the Bible and stuff, and uh, actually when you go in and the, the music service, it's almost like a rock concert, so they play, um, I suppose you could say anti-Baptist music to the Lord uh, with drums and electric guitars, but they sing to the Lord, and they're serious Christians, and they, they love the Lord. i I got to give them that. Anyway, I know the pastor there. He wants to rent a booth during the summer months uh, with um, uh, Farmer's Market on Saturday. He's, they're willing to pay all the money and everything. And Farmer's Market told them no. So that means that myself and I'm going to help him. And we're going to contact the ASLU. And uh, we might have a court fight. And I love courtrooms with real judges, etc. So everyone pray. So is that the announcement to pray for your court fight? Yeah. All right. And, and, All right. So there well, you have it. Especially for Fresh Life Church to be able to have a booth at the farmer's market to spread their message of their church if they want to, pay the same price everybody else is paying to sell their, you know, bell peppers and cantaloupes and everything, and to give out tracts and literature, they should have a right to do that. So, you know, if need be, I, 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 I'm an amateur lawyer, I suppose. I know what to do in court. I'll, I'll get in front of a judge and ask him to let them have a booth in, in the farmer's market if they want to. That should be their right. So you can pray right. about that. Okay, there's the invitation, folks. No laws. Hi, Sean. I'm JC. <laughs> Hi, JC. I, I have a question. Uh, I felt like you were a little hard on the law because God says the law is good. Right, the law is good, and you know you mentioned destroy, which I don't think it was destroyed. I think it was fulfilled, because the law is good. And then when you have in Romans, he's Paul is saying to it's there's much advantage of being a Jew, you know, be having the law brought to you, having the oracles of God, much advantage. But to understand the law, that once you are in Christ, the law then doesn't become a taskmaster; it becomes a schoolmaster to teach you, because the law is still good. The law is fulfilled in Jesus who held the law perfectly, right, his righteousness. So that was just my question is, do you think it's destroyed or fulfilled? I think it's done. You think the law is oh, done? Oh, nail, I think it's done completely. Through Jesus. Way, by Jesus. Right. So the law isn't done, it's just fulfilled in Jesus. Yeah, but you see, so was the nation of Israel and so was the law. So they don't have the law. They're the only ones who had law. Right. We didn't. So I don't see how it could continue on toward a Gentile world. We don't have that law. I would question one thing, and we do that back and forth, JC, out of all respect. Give me a law that's good. Give you a law that's good. You said the law is good. Give me a law that is good in the Christian faith today. I believe all the Ten Commandments, the law is good. All Ten Commandments are good. Okay, and what did Jesus do with the Ten Commandments? If those would have been sufficient in the faith, he would have left them alone, but he amplified them. Well, the law is to show us that we're sinners. Okay. The law is for the broken people. The law is for not the righteous, but the unrighteous to expose us that we can't fulfill law. But not for the body. That's for other people to understand. And since those other people aren't under the law, how could we use it on them? 
Well, then don't you go to Romans 2 where, you know, God's talking about the law. Those who never hear Jesus, those who have never read a Bible, the law will be written on their hearts. They know not to kill ah, man. Okay. The law written on the heart. Now, now right. we're talking about something a little bit different. You said the Ten Commandments. Right. But we're, now we're talking about something written in stone right. versus something written on the human heart. Which is heart. spiritual. The written yes. on the heart is spiritual. I am not against ever the law that God writes upon our hearts. Right. But I am against any law, including the Ten Commandments, I think that they will ultimately wind up going against what Christ came to do. We can talk about it later. Okay. Yeah. Um, I had one, and you know what? Well, that's it. I had another question, but thanks. Thank you, and, and very brave of you to first time, but that, you know, the only people I know who would do that would be Calvinists. <laughs> Just teasing you. Oh, wait, uh, Robert Verdon has a, has a comment, too. No laws, folks, no laws. Robert can... Uh. Thank you, Sean, again. Uh, uh, Matthew 5, 17 and 18, uh, the Lord says, don't, don't think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And till heaven and earth, not one jot or tittle shall pass till all is fulfilled. And of course, the second coming has not happened yet. Oh. And, you know, the Bible talks mm -hmm. about the second coming too. So there's still future events coming. Yeah. Who was he talking to there? I believe he's talking to his disciples. Not to Gentiles. He was definitely not talking to Gentiles. Jews. Right. Okay. Well, right. Right. So he was talking to them. He didn't come to talk to us about it. He sent Paul to do that talking. And we don't see Paul do it, saying the same things nearly what Jesus said. Well, in John, at the end, though, you do see him talking to Gentiles. He prays for the Gentiles in John. He says, now I'm moving to the disciples, but now I'm praying for... I pray for all. I'll pray for the believers that are coming. Sure. I'm not saying he wasn't, didn't come for us to, right. but I'm saying when he came, it was for the house of Israel. So when he speaks, that's to them. Now, is the house of Israel still in existence? Is it still going on or has it been fulfilled? That's the question we would have to answer. I believe it's completely done for and all, every jot, every tittle has been completed when Jesus says it's finished. And so there is no more of it. It is done, fulfilled. And that's why I speak in the way I do about it. But I see your points. I understand them. Is that it? Oh, well, we had it, brother. Two, first Tuesday night, now Sunday. Meet. Masochism is allowed in the body. Uh, I enjoy your teachings. Uh, I enjoy your teachings, especially on the Trinity God. Uh, today, I'd just like to ask you two, two questions. Do you know that there are two Strong's numbers for the law? No. Yeah, one, one is for the New Testament, one's for the Old Testament. It's the Torah in the Old Testament. It doesn't mean law. And from a Jewish perspective, which I am, it actually means teachings. Mm. So those are teachings for us. Okay. So anyway, just, just to, you need to look that up. Thank you for that insight. Excellent stuff. All you guys' insights, add to it. Except for maybe Robert's announcement to pray for the vegetable box that, I'm just kidding you, Robert. Robert and I have a good old relationship. Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we come to you humbly, every one of us, with our hearts open for you and you alone. Not the wisdom of man, not my teachings, not the ideas and traditions, but what you have to show us by your word through the Spirit. So we pray that, uh, like JC talked about, the law written on our hearts, we pray that we will be keenly attuned to what you are telling us. And I think most of us know who have the Spirit of God with us, Lord, 
we know what your law tells us, that we are to live as your son, and we are to die to our flesh, and we are to um, love and forgive and patient, long-suffering, faith, and all those beautiful principles that we learn in the uh, New Testament and Old. So be with us as we, uh, as we reflect upon these things by your Spirit. And exit from this place and go out into the world, praying that be better Christians to our neighbors and our family, friends, and enemies, and help those people who are on our list, our friend Diana, who's overcoming many illnesses, Gracie, Lisa, with her cancer, and Liz. Uh, we pray for God's protection on our children in schools and elsewhere, and all of us who have to have faith over fear. That's written down here on our list. We pray for those who are struggling and having crises of faith who may have uh, uh, let go of, um, of, of you. And we pray for those who have become atheistic and people who become humanists, uh, godless humanists, that they will have your spirit calling to them to bring them to you, Lord. We pray for all of us in the, in the prayers that are on our hearts individually right now, whether we're at home or here, and just be with us as we move forward into whatever you place upon our plate. In Jesus' name, amen.